Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple too. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 66 for December 2016. I am Quinn Dunkey, your co-host of the first. With me as always is co-host of the second, Mike McGuinness. How you doing, Mike? Hey, Quinn. Christmas is almost here. It is, and or whatever other holidays you might uh, uh, celebrate, I guess. Uh, That's true, yes. The holidays are here. How's that? Yeah. I got my Festivus poll up, and it's it's uh, <laughs> ready for the airing of grievances. Oh, good. Good. I'm sure this is the, this is the perfect forum for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, that would that would be our email. That's that's where people <laughs> well, air their, air their grievances. Right. Well, here's everything that was wrong with your last last show. <laughs> that's right. Here's all the stuff you're wrong about, and you, you don't know. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So, you got any uh, any Apple II presents that you hope to get this year? Uh, no, uh, other than the gift of time, I would like to have time to work on uh, side projects and things. So, hopefully, uh, that will happen. Well, that's uh, actually a pretty important one, but I don't know that anyone can actually put time in a box and hand it to you and say Merry Christmas. Yeah, it's hard to wrap because people always know what it is. Yeah, it's, <laughs> And then they try to take it, yes. Yeah, yeah, the, the box collapses into the singularity and then you're like, oh, you gave me time. Oh, well, thanks, <laughs> but, you know, not really a surprise, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Hey, this is John Romero, and you're listening to Open Apple. Okay, well, um, I guess we should just uh, jump right into it, yeah? Yeah, yeah, we have a very cool guest on the show today. Yeah, so uh, today we're going to talk to Glenda Adams, a.k.a. The Atoms. Uh, she was an Apple II cracker from way back when. And what's really cool about this for me is that um, I mean, we've recently had someone on the show who may or may not have been involved in a whole lot of software cracking that's up on the ar- Internet Archive and things like that. Um, but that's all been really recent. I don't think we've talked to anyone who did this back in the day who actually like had a crack screen handle and was in a, in a group. And so this is kind of exciting. Yeah. In fact, we've been uh, looking for one. And I think a lot of people have always been uh, curious about uh, who a lot of those crackers were behind the aliases on the splash screens. So, uh, uh welcome to the show, Glenda. Hi there. It's nice to be here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we, we always like to start out and um, ask the, the, the simple question first. Uh, when was the first time you got your hands on an Apple II? Do you, do you remember what that was like? Oh, yeah. Um, so I was see, I was probably in junior high. Um, and it was, I guess it was probably 1979 or 80. Um, I got an Apple IIe. They had just come out. And I remember a couple of the other people that I knew in like the computer club or at school like, oh, or no, it was a 2 plus. Sorry, sorry. It was a 2 plus. The 2 plus had just come out. And at that point, they're like, oh, don't get it. Just get a regular 2. Don't get the 2 plus because you can just get um, some memory and, and, you know, do the same stuff because they were new and all that. But so we got, I got a 2 plus and, and uh, used that to kind of uh, learn to program and hack around a little bit. Um, and basically, I was, I was quite the nerd at, at that age. Um, and as, as most of us were probably. Um, and so, yeah, so I remember I had that original 2 Plus, that, which served me quite well for many years. Eventually, I, I did, I think I actually probably did replace it with a 2E, and I kind of hung on and got a 2GS right before I finally switched over to the Mac for good after that. But but the the Apple II, especially the, you know, those early, early 2 Plus was kind of the computer I kind of cut my teeth on, I guess you could say. I learned 
AppleSoft at first, basic, and then I taught myself assembly language, and kind of it all went from there. So you di- you dove right into the the hard stuff, the programming, the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My father was a was a programmer, and so I think that's probably one of the reasons ah, I got okay. a got a computer at, at such a at a young age, and way especially back then, and and so I was always kind of around it a bit, and thought it was cool, and and and. Found I had a had a bit of a knack for it, so that was that was good. It was something that uh, kept me busy. So, do you remember any of the uh, the first programs that you wrote? Um, yeah, I'm sure the first few things I I you know did a lot of played around with a lot of graphics stuff. Did you know those original you know little high res graphics uh, kind of demos and you know stuff like drawing like string art and you know, you know things like that. Uh, did a, I did a, do a few. Uh, I was worked on a text adventure game when the, kind of the Infocom games were out, and I, I was working on my own little little game with a friend of mine in in high school, I guess. Uh, for it seemed like a couple of years. I mean, maybe it wasn't that long. Maybe it was a couple summers. But we never actually got any. I mean, we did a lot of work on it, but we never actually got it to the state of giving showing it to anybody or or selling it or anything like that. But but it was kind of a fun fun little uh, little project where we just worked on on and off and. And wrote a, a little text parser and and uh, you know the story and, and a bunch of stuff. It was probably pretty pretty hackneyed at the time as we were <laughs> teenagers. I didn't know any better, but uh, it had some silly jokes and, and 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 stuff like that. So that was probably the first thing I I could remember writing. You know, that was a big program. That was something more than just type. I remember getting. Uh, you know the Apple II magazines and some computer magazines, and you know typing in sample code or little sample, you know type in uh, games and programs like that. That was part of the way I learned learned to program um, before I kind of went on to to writing my own my own stuff. Uh, Quinn, I think you said like what was it last time? Like writing ninety percent of the program is really easy, and it's the last ten percent that's hard. Something like <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us at that age uh, started a lot of games. Uh, I certainly did. Uh, I have <laughs> boxes of floppies full of games that are thirty to sixty percent done. Uh, right about where it stops getting fun. Weirdly, uh, I would get another idea. It's funny how that works. And that's exactly the same. <laughs> I can I can I can feel the same thing. I, yeah, there was lots of like half incomplete like. Oh, Oh, this is cool. Let's do this, and then you get a little ways into it, and, and then yeah, something else shiny comes along <laughs> yeah. and distracts you, or you're like you say, it gets hard, and you get to the de- the really tough implementation details, and you're just like, oh, geez, I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I really want to stick with this. So yeah, it was hard to get something into what we consider a shippable state now. Now that I after I became a an actual paid software engineer. <laughs> yeah, the I always would get to some point where I'd have some really bad bug and I would get frustrated and sort of give up. And usually the bug was just because I didn't really know anything about computer science or software engineering. So I had built the whole system in a terrible way. And then it just gets to a point where it just collapses under its own weight and you can't really continue. Yeah, I definitely can. I can, I can feel that. <laughs> I've, I've been there before. So, so Glenda, how then did you make that transition from programming into cracking? It was kind of a natural evolution. I mean, part of it was, um, you know, you're tinkering around and you're writing code and stuff. And then you know, I played lots of games. We, we were obviously, as, as teenagers, everybody was kind of trading games and looking, you know, watching what's the new stuff coming out in the magazines and, and things like that. And you didn't, didn't have enough money to buy, you know, 100 Apple II games a year or whatever. So, so everybody was kind of just copying and trading things around and and one of the things was I realized you know kind of a little bit how things were working copy protection that wise and I started 
learning assembly language 6502. Um, you kind of just started looking at the games in terms of, of you know, how do they work? You know, kind of trace through the code. I mean, the nice thing about the, the good thing about assembly language is all the codes are right there. There's not anything really hidden because you're at that such a low level. So you can just start, you know, walking through the code and 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 see what it does um and so maybe kind of kind of a natural challenge i guess to to say you know, oh can you know can i make this can i break this game can i crack it and make it uh you know can i make it actually work without the copy protection and so so i kind of fell into that and probably just tried you know messing around with a few little simple games and at that time, yeah, there was a, and the Apple II scene was kind of interesting. It was all, you know, BBSs and modems and, and uh, ASCII Express and DFX and all the transfer programs and, you know, people making handles and making little groups and all these little pirate groups, that, you know, kind of fought between each other for stupid random reasons, you know, that kids, kids will do. Um, and you know, everybody was trying to get the get their their game out first, or their crack out first, or their crack was better than somebody else's, and and so you know I was probably fed a good uh, a good teenage ego at the time <laughs> to to try to get into that uh, that kind of scene. So so I was pretty active with that. I ran a BBS around a, and it's funny because now as I was re- I was thinking about all of this because it's been it's been a fair number of years. Um, it was either called the Thieves Den or. Uh, there was another name I can remember. I, my friend ran a BBS. I ran a BBS, and I always get a, which one was which was confused. Um, and so we, you know, we ran that with you know little forms and message bases and things like that. Um, and so, so I was kind of in that kind of group in that scene, and then all the rest of the all the other kind of crackers and and you know wares people, and that were kind of spread around the U.S. and even yeah some outside the country, and so. You know, you chat with people over modems. You you talked on the phone a lot. I was on the phone a lot <laughs> as a teenager, I guess, um, and so kind of got into that that bit of the world. Um, and and really mostly, you know, self taught myself, you know, how to crack things. I was not the most accomplished at the time, but I think you know, looking back and seeing the crack screens, uh, there's a a Twitter handle. It's patented and been tweeting out old Apple II crack screens lately, and that's what kind of caught my eye. Yeah, that's um, how I found you. <laughs> yeah, because I saw my name, I was like, "Oh my goodness, I'd forgotten about." And it's funny because I, I can't, I can remember two or three games that I remember doing, but then there was one that this was like Winnie the Pooh Adventures that, <laughs> that somebody popped up and was like, "I don't even remember doing that," but I obviously must have. Um, and so, so there were kind of some of the secondary lesser games that that I did. I wasn't. Uh, there was lots of big names back then, like Mr. Crackman and and uh, the Triton and and Black Bag and you know, all these groups and things like that. Um, so there were there were lots of kind of famous uh, you know pirates and crackers too. And I was I was a bit you know at least on the periphery there and, and had done done my part I guess to <laughs> preserving some of those games at the time. Maybe I don't know if you could call it preserving it when it was in the middle of the of the original uh, publishing cycle. So uh, yeah, we should we should say you went under the name the Atom. Uh, do you remember the first thing that you cracked uh, that had a splash screen with that name on it? Um, boy, that's try- I'm trying to remember. I'm certainly the handle probably the handle certainly came up um, earlier when just you know you needed the name to post on the BBSs and things like that. And I thought it was a it was a clever clever play on my my last name so and also i kind of like the cracked by the atom kind of that was kind of a funny play on words too so there was a lot of a lot of bad puns and, and that in people's handles back then i remember um 
I I can't remember what the first one would be. It could have been, for all I know, it could have been Winnie the Pooh Adventure. <laughs> um, there was another there was another adventure game, kind of a two D side scroller adventure called Below the Root. I remember it was actually kind of a difficult one. I I I cracked that. Um, a couple others, but but yeah, that's it's been too many years for me to remember what the very first one. It's too bad I should have taken some notes or something. <laughs> And and you said you you're entirely self taught. There was um, you know you could log on to BBSs and find like there were cracking guides and I, there was Computist magazine that showed you how to crack programs. But um, if you did that by yourself, that sounds like that's quite an accomplishment. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, part of it was certainly. I mean, there certainly were you know, kind of source materials I used. I mean, I, I mean you had the sixty five two assembly manual, which was you know came with a came with the computer, I think, um, or I bought it at the bookstore. Um, I'm, I'm sure I had I had read some of the you know there was all oh, yeah how to crack files. I think I actually have to look on the text files site and I actually wrote a, a how to crack something. Uh, I remember writing a couple of those little articles later in in, in my. Uh, tenure as, as that. Um, and so I'm sure I read some of those kind of things too and gets, got some t- tips and tricks from that. So it was, it was kind of a mixture of, you know, kind of just getting the manual and pouring through the code and, and, and looking at, looking at different programs and yeah, bits you gleaned from talking to other people and you know, other people that did stuff. So it was kind of interesting that one of the interesting things I definitely remember is a lot of times you wouldn't actually have, you might not be able to get a hold of the the disc or the game that you're trying to crack at the time because somebody maybe somebody's got it and he's in Chicago and I'm in Texas. And I remember we would I'd get on the phone and you'd walk him through talking, you know, like, okay, do this, do this, do this, tell me what it says, you know, what's next. And that was a really long and laborious process to actually try to crack something doing that because a lot of times the guy on that was on the other end of the phone wasn't a programmer or wasn't quite as, as savvy about it. And so trying to trying to just do it all basically audio over the phone was was kind of a trick it was much better if you could get a hold of one of the originals yourself and then you know so you could actually just work on it straight on your computer i think i only successfully was able to crack something over the phone maybe once or twice because it just it was a lot that was a that was a hard process yeah, that that sounds exhausting that's like <laughs> it was it's a good thing as a kid you just had a lot of free time i guess and yeah. didn't you know really care <laughs> yeah it's like tech support for your grandparents but times a thousand <laughs> yeah in assembly language yeah, yeah so that's so that's great <laughs> so were you um were you part of a group yeah so i was there was a couple different groups you know there was the big groups like the like there was 1200 club and oh goodness i can't remember some of the others but there was one called black bag that was a uh, a guy, I think in Chicago, and I think he was uh, Mr. Idoc. I think was the name of the thing, and he was actually like an optometrist. I think he was he was an old, older, older guy. wasn't wasn't a kid like all the rest of us. Um, and we were briefly uh, part of Black Bag for a while. There was some falling out at some point, and we either got either left in a huff or got kicked out or something. I don't remember which. But, um, but we were we worked with them for a little bit, and I remember we did. I think we at least cracked one or two things under under their name. I'd say we. There was a really good good friend of mine at the time in high school, and his his handle was One Eye, as like a one eyed pirate. <laughs> um, it's a lot of if you look at any of the crack screens that have my name, a lot of them most usually were the Adam and One Eye because um, we we hung out all the time. And so he was in Black Bag too. We were in that for a while. I think once then when we left, we started a group 
just a few of us that were in Texas called LSD, which actually stood for Lone Star Distributors. That was another <laughs> cute little play on words, and we were thinking we were being really, really smart there. That <laughs> it was funny that um, to have that name. And so there was a few LSD wares, and I think we did something called uh, Five Star Elite because everybody wanted to be elite. And so we just said we were. We were five-star five elite. Um, so there was a few different groups like that that we kind of you know, went in and out of over the years. I guess probably, you know, I did that stuff probably from early 80s till I was in college in the like mid-80s. And so probably it kind of wound down once I started college and that. So it probably was a span of three or four years at the time. So there was a lot of turnover, a lot of a lot of things that went on over those those years. So something I, I've always wondered is the, the splash screens that crackers would put in, in these games. Uh, who made them and how did you put them in there? Because like, usually the discs were full, the commercial ones were full. Yeah, so. it was always tricky to fit those in. And, and you know, so we basically, you know, we would usually make them ourselves. Sometimes, like if you had a group like Black Bag or something like that, sometimes they'd have somebody who was a member of the group that was kind of a bit more graphically uh adept you know or had the right had the tools to kind of make you a make you a high-res screen that you could put in um when font tricks came out that was like <laughs> oh my god that was the best thing ever because <laughs> now you had all these fonts and you could just lay them out on the screen and of course it exploded if you look at those crack screens now it's just it makes your head explode because <laughs> there's so many it's like how many fonts can we use on one screen <laughs> all of them yeah and so uh, sometimes like we had a friend another friend from that lived in in Austin that went to another high school, but he was also on the BBSs, and we had him do one of our one of the screens once, and it was funny because I think even we were like, "Oh, this is horrible," but we're like, "Well, we asked him to do it, so we should just put it in anyway." <laughs> um, because even then we had some taste. Um, so yeah, it was interesting because yeah, a lot of times the discs were pretty full, and, you know, and you you really kind of had to intercept the the boot routines and display your crack page before you kind of let the let flow go back on to the program. Um, a lot of people end up doing a little bootloader, so basically there was something you'd replace those first couple tracks or sectors on the disc with something that would really as tiny as it could be would just load and display a high res page and then kind of load and jump back into the game um so that was always tricky and you could kind of see some of the crack pages some of them are these great big you know neat high-res graphic screens some of them it's just text you know that's because it was obviously a lot smaller to just print some text to the screen or even in the case i remember there was a couple where all you could do is kind of like they might have had some little loading text that came up and you basically just went in and changed the you know, it fit in what what amount of text you could in the in the two or three lines that were already there, so that you actually weren't adding any new data to the to the app. So that so that kind of became that was always the kind of the last thing you did after if once you got it cracked and working, then you definitely had to because you had to take credit for it. That was such a big deal back then that you wanted to be you were the ones who did it because generally whoever did the first crack or the first crack that worked well. Um, that one would be the one that gets, got disseminated everywhere. Everybody would copy that. So if you got there first and you got your name on it, then everybody would know who you were, or at least your or who your your silly Apple II pirate handle was. <laughs> yeah, that's that's funny. I bet you could deduce the date that Fontrix came out by when all of the crack screens exploded. <laughs> with oh yeah, definitely. That was, yeah, you could see that as soon as like all of a sudden there's like medieval fonts and yeah. all this crazy <laughs> stuff you know, going all over everywhere. And um, and I noticed, well, yeah, one of them some of the crack screens, yeah, they almost turned into, yeah, they were like, you know, 
uh, you know, almost like diss albums and stuff. There was these little beefs and wars between the groups, <laughs> mm-hmm. and there'd be, you know, oh, this game's cracked by them, and then like, oh, this other guy, he sucks, or, or whatever, <laughs> you know, and things like that. So it turned into these things, so then the next, you know, the other group would crack something, and they would say something back, and so it was, it was it'd be an interesting thing to go back and look at those, maybe chronologically and by group, and kind of see how that thing works. And also, there was a lot of turnover, you know, people were part of this group, and then they left, and they were part of another group, and and so it was kind of a it was kind of an interesting uh you know sociology there i guess <laughs> i'm glad you mentioned that part about modifying the original uh splash screens because i always kind of wondered how crackers decided when to do that sometimes they would make their own splash screen sometimes they would just add like cracked by so and so to the the original game's splash screen and uh, that makes sense that it would uh save space to do that because you wouldn't have to add it yeah it was really just a, yeah a matter of, you know, how complex was the bootloading and you know could you fit something in or or if there was just no room with the game was so packed full on the disc there was no way then a lot of people yeah you just end up like okay i'm just gonna see if we can stick our name somewhere in the corner here because that's all we can all we can really do so did you ever do one of the cracks where they would remove significant portions of the game either to make space or just to turn it into a file crack or something like that I think I did a couple file cracks, but in those cases, it was smaller games where you could fit them because I never, we really didn't, you know, you wanted to have all the game there. You didn't want to ruin and take out pieces of it or, or, you know, parts that were actually used. So I didn't, I didn't ever, don't remember, remember doing anything where you actually like, you know, took out something that was important. But there was definitely, you know, at that point, if you had a game that really only took half a disc, well, if you could get it down to a file loader and a file crack, then now you could put it on a disc with another game or two. And, and that was pretty cool. So you definitely, that was a that was a plus if you could, if you could figure out a way to do that. Um, that was probably the earlier games as it got you know as the developers got more uh, advanced and and they were trying to cram as much content as they could onto discs and multiple discs. Then then things got filled up enough to where you, it was pretty tough to do a file crack on some of them. So so that was definitely harder. Yeah, you definitely saw that with the real early games where they loaded themselves completely completely into memory and it seemed like there was a lot of people would just load the game and then be save it <laughs> to a file and you know Yeah, you, that was yeah, that it. was the easiest <laughs> that was the easiest crack to you know to start with is yeah, you'd have the, you know, and then they, at some point there were some of those uh some hardware things, a crack shot or snapshot, I can't remember which was, was a peripheral card you plugged in that would literally do that that you would basically it would dump all of memory out to a file that it could load back in later and basically set everything back up to exactly as, how it had been. And so you could do this kind of snapshot, crack shot, uh, you know, picture of memory for those games that didn't require disk access. And it was a, a quick and easy way to, to kind of do that. So that was kind of interesting. I, one of the reasons I think that like today we have trouble finding people who want to talk to us about this is because the software companies at the time were so like, They'd invested a lot of time and energy in protecting this these these programs, and they tended to be litigious and come after, especially kids like you were at the time. Were you ever worried about getting caught? Oh yeah, you always were. <laughs> it was it was kind of I mean, it was one of the reasons once I got it got to college. Once I turned eighteen, I was like, okay, this is kind of <laughs> stupid. I, I shouldn't be doing this. And plus, you know, I be I I went to college and and got a computer science degree, and I became a software developer and I could see it from the other side then it was less of a kind of harmless just like ah this is fun we're just copying games and and that you know uh, and more like oh wow this is like somebody's livelihood and so yeah I kind of grew through that and realized like this wasn't probably the best idea um and and you certainly yeah you were always worried about that that you know that you were gonna get you know that somebody was gonna catch you or it was less 
I don't remember as much about the software um, companies and that going after. They did have some people. I remember a few stories. More of it, there was a, at that same time, there was a really big kind of subculture of, of, of phone freaking, phone hacking, and, and uh, you know, kind of long-distance calls and doing long-distance calls for free and commerce calls and stuff like that. That was the one that was much more likely if you were heavy into that. You definitely heard of people that got, you know, got in trouble and got got arrested or got, you know, called up in front of somebody because that was certainly a lot easier to to trace and there was a lot lot more uh, police force or I don't know what you call it, but, you know, there was definitely more authoritarian kind of looking at that and and that. So that seemed like that was probably more likely. But a lot, most of the, a lot of the people that were doing that, you know, if you're calling some BBS in, you know, another state or whatever like that and downloading some 140K game, 300 baud or 1200 baud, you probably weren't paying for the phone call <laughs> all the time. So, But you didn't have, like, police show up at your door or anything like that? I never had the police show up by a door. Okay. okay. <laughs> I had one. There was the the only time, and the one probably one of the time the the time that maybe did also kind of get me out of the out of the business, so to speak, or out of the out of that kind of pastime. Uh, the Secret Service came came over to my apartment when I was in college, which was interesting. And at the time, and I don't know if this is still a thing, but at the time, it was the Secret Service that investigated basically like phone phone fraud. Um, and phone hacking and stuff. And basically, I, at some point, I had been on. There was there was all these conference call systems back then, um, which was kind of a way where some of these groups would yeah, get together. And, you know, you get eight or ten people on a line and basically just talk talk all night or whatever. And um, the people that were like really seriously into phone hacking it could knew how to basically hijack those conference calls. And at some point along the way, somebody had somebody from one of the little pirate groups that I was part of, it called, called up on a conference call and, and called me and I was on it with a, you know, the friend or two and, and didn't think anything much of it. Cause you didn't, it was like, well, I didn't start the call or, or doing anything. You know, it's just somebody called up, you chat for an hour and then hung up. But but of course, all those records are in the in the files. So at some point, this the whoever they were going after, the person that had started this, because it must probably had started a bunch of conference calls and run up a big bill for some company somewhere. Um, they decided to do their due diligence and basically go down and find out all the phone numbers that were on the call that people had called and go visit them. Um, and so they showed up one day and and sat down and talked to me for a half hour or something, basically. And I was like, yeah, all I know is these people's handles and, you know, vaguely where they are, but don't really have any idea, you know, who actually originated the call or, or really wasn't involved with any of that. But still still put the fear of God in me at the time as a you know, so whatever I was. I was a 17-year-old or 16-year-old or something. I must have been 17 probably because I had just started college, I would guess. But, um, yeah, so that was my one brush with it. And that was the, that was enough to, yeah, say like, okay, that's probably, let's, let's do something that's a little more productive <laughs> with our time here. Yeah, that that would certainly scare the heck out of me. <laughs> yeah, it's too bad because I had one little bit of 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 kind of uh, nostalgia, and from that, I had this little bitty book, little little address book kind of thing that I had written all the names or all the you know the handles and phone numbers for people that I knew in the Apple II world at the time, and you know that you would call and you would chat or chat with, and that. And at some point, I. I hid it in my apartment when the because I thought was worried that the Secret Service or whatever was coming or something, and 
I never found it. I moved a couple of years later, and I don't know where I hid it. It was like, oh, there were so many, just just as from a nostalgia standpoint, just for going back and remembering all the names. So it's kind of cool seeing all these crack screens on Twitter now, because I'm like, oh, I do remember. It's like, oh, there's, you know, the Triton or, uh, you know, people like that, you know, uh, disc jockey, you know, some of those guys that like, oh, I kind of remember that. That was somebody. I, I imagine there are some people in that book that are very happy that you lost it. probably so who knows what that would mean for that you know what we used to that would be at this point but yeah i evidently hit hit it i hit it really well because i never (laughs) did find it again (laughs) so maybe i maybe i I, there was something i erased that from my own memory so i wouldn't wouldn't find it so but that was pretty funny i think i had a little name it was like and it was they're so classic of you know there's kids and teenagers and stuff that do it it, like the 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 thing i have written on the title page it was it was the adams uh pirates i know list <laughs> uh there's a there's a guy today actually uh he calls himself 4am and he's been cracking software like crazy and one of the great things about it is um every now and then he'll stumble across one that's that's either really well protected or there'll be like hidden messages to the pirates from the company in the code did you ever come across anything like that i didn't i don't know if i remember ever seeing something like that specifically in uh anyone's eye cracked but i definitely saw bits of it you know because other 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 crackers would if they came across something would would post a picture or, or you know copy the text to put it on a bbs so i saw definitely saw some of those and i yeah i've been watching i've been that was kind of where it led me back into all this uh, is somebody retweeted 4am and i'd been following him now for however long six months or something and and watching and reading all those cracks because it just brought so many memories back and i was like oh man and it, but the ones he's cracking some of those i'm like i walk read through his trace and i'm like oh my god this, this is insane there's no way i would have ever done figured out this when i was <laughs> when i was doing these i was way out of my league at that point um but that's pretty cool yeah and and just to see the stuff that that yeah the hoops they were jumping through to do that protection code and and then yeah, it is kind of funny to see the little bits of uh, of things that are in there, uh, you know, little notes to the pirates that say, "Please don't don't crack this," or you know, <laughs> things like that. And of course, we definitely I saw some games that had you know pretty insidious protections where it's instead of just you know they're just going to reboot or whatever, it's just going to fa- hang, you know just silently set some flag and then now like you can never win the game you can't get past level two or you know for some reason you always i think it was prince of persia or maybe it was either prince of persia or karataka um had something where they were like there was like a jump that you just couldn't make the jump if you had if you jumped over this 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 gorge this chasm chasm it uh you couldn't make it if it was a bad crack if the crack hadn't worked if they detected you'd done something tampered with it and you just couldn't quite figure out why it was either, yeah it was something like that but yeah there was a couple of those like that where you just you realize like oh something's gone wrong and 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 this the game isn't working so um you said you uh, you had a 2gs then uh, for a while did you ever do any cracking on the 2gs as well or just the 8 bits no by that time i had pretty much just gone on to to doing software development. So I think the GS I got because I had a Mac at the time and the, the early, early Mac. And I really loved doing a lot, doing programming on that, but there was no color. It was, it was back just the original Mac black and white. And when the GS came out with two of six, two of six colors, I was like, Oh my goodness, this is so amazing. Cause I want to be a game programmer. Um, so I got that and mostly just used it for, for just coding and, and playing games on it too. Cause I still played ga- a lot of games at the time. So uh, do you remember what happened to your Apple IIs? Do you still have any of them? Or 
So I dill, I, I have an Apple IIe actually that's here in my home office. Um, it's not my original. I don't. I at some point I I sold my my Apple II Plus and my IIe. Um, probably just sold them a garage sale so I'd have money to buy a new computer, you know, buy a Mac or or something else. Um, and uh, the so those those are long gone. But my my dad actually the local school played a little place I went to in North Texas that I went to junior high at probably, I don't know, it must've been 10, 10 years ago, maybe. Um, they had like a whole bunch of Apple IIe's and original monitors and disk drives like sitting in storage still. And they were going to throw them out in the dumpster. And he actually saw it and remembered you know, that I'd had an Apple II. And so he like went and scavenged before they tossed them out and got me a complete working IIe disk drive and, and original Apple II mon- color monitor. Um, and boxed them all up and sent them to me out of the blue. So I was like, oh, this is so cool. Every once in a while, I still turn it on just to hear the beep and, <laughs> and you know, play around. Try to the crazy thing for me was I could, how much you could still remember, of, you know, like, oh, here's how you get in a monitor and here's, you know, different commands and stuff like that. It's like, wow, I hadn't done those in, uh, for 30 years or something, and, and it's still stuck in my brain. <laughs> So that that if that came from you said it came from the junior highest that you attended, so that's has a pretty good chance of being in one that you actually used, right? It could have been, yeah, it could have been in one in the computer lab. It may have been. It seemed like I'm trying to remember if we had much in the. I don't know if we had any computers much in junior high. I think these might have been in the high school, and I didn't go to high school there. I moved before that, so they may or may not have been. But it's certainly it's it's possible because it was definitely this is the same school, so it's it certainly could have been one that I. I, I did something with or played with at the time. So over on um, Jason Scott's excellent textfiles.com, he's got a list of um, of Apple II crack screens and, and screenshots of them. And what's great is um, he's got this nice uh, laid out list where you can just search for like, cause it's like the title and then the names on the crack screen. And so I'm looking at some of yours, uh, just searching on the page for the Adam and it looks like like agent USA and, Oh, I remember Agent USA, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's one here called Burger Time um, that uh, that you cracked that said uh, thanks to no one at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that was it. Yeah, that was something. I remember we were in some kind of snit with the other crackers or something. It was Because there was always, that was a big thing is like yeah, you would put, you know, cracked by whoever it was. And then you'd say thanks. And you'd thank, you know, the guy that got you the original or just other members of the group or somebody who ran a local BBS or something like that. But at some point there, I think there was probably some, some little thanks war going on between, you know, somebody didn't get included in the credits they wanted. It's, and we were at that point, I, I find kind of remember that we were in some kind of snit. We were like, Oh, we're just not going to thank anybody. So thanks to no one for this. <laughs> uh, looks like as part of LSD, you cracked, uh, Hallie's project. And thanks to dragon lady, the talisman and the hitman. <laughs> <laughs> And it's funny too, because I mean, those are all just kids. I mean, like the, and the hitman or the talisman. I think it was a guy in New Jersey, and you know, he was like, you know, a fifteen-year-old kid going to high school, probably you know, hanging out in his in his room, you know, with his, on his on BBSs on his Apple Cat modem. <laughs> Nothing but time on his hands during the summer to crack software. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's probably what we did most of the summer. That was probably yeah, that was it. <laughs> the, one of these screens is actually it looks like a member list for the club. Uh, you and, and one I are at the top and then below that is Camel Jockey, the Fox, the Saint, Mr. Uh, the Bandito and Mr. Xerox. Yeah. Do you remember any of those people? Uh, I remember the Saint. I remember the Saint. We, do, we talked to him a good bit on and off. The funny thing is too, is partially it's just the, the length of time, but, um, 
I don't even remember these people's real first names. <laughs> and I'm sure we, I'm sure we referred to each other as like, I remember like there was a, the cracksmith was Drew. For some reason, I can remember his name was Drew, but that's about the only one I could remember that was, was, uh, um, that was, yeah, I can, so it's funny at this point, like it's all lit, lost to the mists of time now that I can't remember. I remember, I think the guy that was, that had the handle, which now is, is not terribly politically correct, a camel jockey, yeah. he was actually Middle Eastern because I believe <laughs> his name was like, was Minaj or it was something that was, it was a Middle Eastern name. So I think he was certainly kind of a playing on his, his own, you know, kind of essence <laughs> for the, it wasn't, wasn't a dig at anybody else but at that time you didn't think anything of it really at, at that um but yeah it's kind of funny i do remember yeah some of those names certainly ring a bell and you you almost remember the funny thing too is the first memory that probably comes back with people is their area code because that's where you kind of remembered like oh he was from 212 or he was from 617 and you at that at that age or, or during that because there was a lot of calling bbs's and kind of you vaguely knew like Boston area code or LA area code or Philadelphia or something like that. So you'd remember whether somebody, what area code they were in 415, they were out in San Francisco or 617 was Boston. And, and so you kind of had all these little three digit area codes memorized. And that, that was as much what you remember who was from where uh, as anything else. Sounds like you guys had a lot of fun. <laughs> it was quite an interesting little less little, uh, little few summers there and, and yeah through that it was a lot of a lot of uh, and then in one hand you know it was it was it, I learned a lot you know I learned a lot of coding and, and from reading other people's code and, and kind of teaching myself like that so that was that was pretty valuable and in other ways it was I think just kind of classic teenage just you know clicks and groups and 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 uh drama about silly little manufactured things i mean basically no different than than kids that were hanging out wherever else you know if you were you know doing some other other activities so so but it was kind of interesting in that it was a truly kind of very virtual kind of uh um space to be in because everybody really was pretty separated by fairly long distances um i remember there was a couple times there was maybe one time we actually went on a trip we were in Austin and we went, drove up to Dallas and we met a couple other people up there and just you know, and hung out and played games and something for a weekend or something like that. But generally you never met any of these people in real life. You never knew what they looked like or, or anything really. You just, it was just a name on a BBS. So the few that you did meet, were they anything at all like you imagined them to be? Um, probably not so much. I mean, it, in like any kind of online, you know, meeting kind of thing where you, you're the person you picture is probably doesn't look anything like what they actually look like. Um, so physically different like that, but then like personality and that they were pretty much exactly like they were online. <laughs> you know, they were like, yep, that's uh, just like, you know, just like you expected it to be. So, so in, in that sense, there probably wasn't too much of a surprise um, um, in, in terms of that. I wondered if you're involved in any of the modern kind of retro computing stuff, uh, you know, the new hardware and the new uh, uh, get-togethers and that sort of thing. I haven't really done any of that. I've, I've kind of been tempted to kind of get back into it a little and now that seeing like all the stuff that, you know, that 4AM is doing and, you know, some of the little, all these little cracks. And I kind of went down the rabbit hole a little bit and dug around and looked at, at you know, kind of some of the retro stuff in the Kansas uh, Fest and some of those. And it would be kind of fun because that's such a, I have pretty fond memories of all that time and the, that history. So I think I might, uh, as I get a little free time, uh, dig into that a little bit and go back and, and play with it a little bit. Cause it is, it is kind of fun to, 
to go back and 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 see some of those uh, some of that tech from from way back when when things were so much simpler than they are now. <laughs> well, you should definitely come to Kansas Fest. Yeah, we'd sure. love to have you. Oh, I definitely will. I'll, t- I'll definitely look at that because I think that would be kind of fun. There was a lot of a lot of folks from from those age. I think kind of yeah. I, I gradually you know kind of asked you know kind of what I'm doing now or kind of where I went. You know, I I kind of moved into into software development as I you know went into college and that I became a game developer after I graduated. And I was actually there in Austin where Origin Systems was. So I um, one of the first the first game I actually worked on was a game called Space Rogue. Oh, I love um, Space Rogue. That's one of my favorite Which games. Was, <laughs> me too. It's, it was the most awesome game. So I was so Paul Nurath, who wrote that originally for Origin. Um, I worked with him when they had written that game, and they were getting close to shipping. I don't think they had quite shipped it yet for the Apple II. And at that time, Origin was was porting all their games, to, you know, everything to Commodore sixty four, Mac. PC, you know, there's that kind of crossover type when all those systems existed in the kind of mid 80s. Um, and so they actually, I answered an ad in the newspaper uh, for a little company in town that had basically gotten the, the contract with Origin to port Space Rogue to the IBM PC, the Mac, and the Amiga, and maybe, the, I don't know if they did the C64 or not, but oh, Atari ST. It was the Atari ST at the time. Um, so actually, that was the first thing I did when I got out of college. Is I got all I talked to Paul. I met him and got this re, these reams of sixty five hundred two assembly language that he had written Space Rogue on the Apple II in, and it was my job to port that to the IBM PC. That was the first thing I ever did, um, and so it was cool because at that time, it was like I had played all the Ultimas, and you know I'm his big gamer at the time, and so. Origin was right there in Austin. They had moved there from somewhere else, and uh, recently, and I got to go out to Origin's, you know, offices where they were working. And at the time, they were working on Wing Commander, um, and so I went into. The, I would go in, and I was going to the QA room or something. And I'd see them playing Wing Commander. I was like, "Oh my god, this is the coolest thing ever!" Because it would just look so amazing. Um, so I kind of it was kind of cool. I was like inside the game business and inside the industry, and got to see sneak peeks of the you know, games before they came out. And then I was getting to work with people that I had known or read, seen their names about. So that was you know got to go out to uh, Lord British's Garriott's uh, uh, July Fourth party out at his at. Britannia Main or uh, one of his original houses, um, stuff like that. Um, so I originally, that was kind of my first way that job was I, you know, I ported all that 6502 assembly over into mostly C, but also a little bit of assembly for the fast stuff. Um, did the IBM version, did the Macintosh version, which the IBM version was kind of like, I really didn't want to do that, but they were like, well, you have to do, if you want to do the Mac one, you have to do the IBM <laughs> one. So I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And we had to do the IBM one first cause they wanted it first. Um, and then I did the Mac one, which was really the most near and dear to my heart. That was my, what I feel was my first commercial game that I went into software, et cetera, at the mall and saw it on the shelf. Oh, cool. um, and that was really cool. Um, I still got it on the shelf in my office here. Um, and I think the Macintosh version of Space Rogue was the, by far the best. I put so much time and effort into it and it had gorgeous, you know, 256 color graphics and, and lots of really nice little Mac UI things because I was always kind of a UI uh, nerd too. Um, and it was by far the best one. Then I went back, did the Amiga one. I had an Amiga for a while and I did that version, which was really cranky. The Amiga was an amazing system to heart of hardware, but it was so kind of persnickety and it was, it was, it was a, difficult one to to work for 
I was glad that in the end, I think we, the company I worked for hired another programmer and he had to do the Atari ST version, which was good because after three ports of it, I was getting pretty tired of the space run <laughs> code. <laughs> but that was cool because it was, it was originally based on uh, Chuck Yeager's flight trainer, uh, which Ned Lerner wrote for EA for Electronic Arts back in the day on the Apple II. So I got a bunch of this Chuck Yeager's flight trainer code that I actually used. It used the same 3D system for flying through space that they used for the flight simulator. Um, so there was a lot of common code that we kind of used pieces of that because I think they had ported that to the IBM maybe already. And so we got to reuse a little bit of that code. Um, and so I kind of did that, did games for a while, then I actually did, uh, I did Chuck Yeager's Air Combat for the Mac. That was a game that I think I don't know if they ever, I think it was probably too late. They probably didn't do that for the Apple II. That was probably a PC game. Um, and then basically, yeah, I did, did video games for, for a good 20 years. Um, Macintosh mostly did ports of just all kinds of games from Duke Nukem 3D to Tomb Raider, Unreal, Madden 2000, just all kinds of crazy, crazy games for, for years and years. So my, my you know, hacking and, and cracking uh, games and assembly language as a kid kind of paid off, and I actually got to do kind of what I wanted to do uh, as a career. So that was, that was kind of cool. So are you still in the games industry or have you moved on to other types of software? Uh, I actually kind of left it about, let's see, about 2009. Um, I'd moved up. I, at that point, I wasn't programming much anymore. I was the director of development for Aspire Media, uh, which is a, a big uh, Mac game publisher. Um, done some also console PC games. I worked for them for a while, kind of burned out and also at that point, the, the iPhone came out, and it was kind of fun that the iPhone was a throwback, not to the Apple II, but at least to kind of the early Mac days, in that it was a much simpler system. Like one programmer could just sit down, come up with an idea, write a game, get it out, put it in the store, you know. And when that happened, I kind of decided I'm going to go back and just uh, kind of be a programmer in a garage kind of thing. And I did uh, iPhone app development for, for the good uh, first four or five years of the of the iPhone and the App Store, um, and had kind of rode the boom of that, and had a good time. Wrote a lot of little kids' games, uh, cupcake baking game, and decorating, and and some little fun fun stuff like that. It was kind of a, a neat kind of return to the past of of kind of one program or one project. Um, as that stuff kind of dried up, now I currently actually am a uh, the iOS developer for a, a little company here in Madison, in Wisconsin, that does a grocery shopping app. Um, so I, I still code. Um, no games anymore, but but it's still code and it's still fun, so I enjoy that. Yeah, a lot of people have drawn that parallel with early mobile development that, yeah, it sort of harkened back to that one one person, one project feel. And uh, yeah, it's a shame that it, we're kind of losing it again as the mobile projects now are getting really big. But uh... Yeah, and that was one of the reasons I finally kind of left the independent app, app store is that just it got to the point where you could no longer be, you know, a developer and just come up with a fun idea and a cool idea and write it really well and put it in the store and sell it. It's like, nope, now you're you're competing with, you know, somebody who's doing a freemium game that's got a fifty million dollar ad budget and they're running ads during the Super Bowl, or or you're you're up against, you know, Cartoon Network or Electronic Arts or, you know, somebody who's who's gonna go put, you know, several million dollars or more into a into development with a big team and a giant art budget and stuff like that. So it kinda of, yeah, it kind of went through the same cycles as as the rest of the business um, has. So so it's so yeah, it's a little too bad that that's we've kind of lost that again. Maybe there maybe there'll be another platform that will <laughs> will come along and, and let us do that or maybe I'll just go back and yeah, do some more retro stuff. 
Um, at one point, I, re- I, I actually talked to Paul. I still talk to Paul Neurath every once in a while um, about getting the rights to Space Rogue because I wanted to do an iPhone version of it. And I, I kind of, and I still had the code. I still had the Macintosh code uh, on a disk somewhere. And then somehow it got corrupted and got lost, and I couldn't find the code anymore. And other things happened, and I was, that, that project never kind of went anywhere, which was kind of a bummer because I would, I think that would have been a really fun little little game to do as a kind of an iPhone, iPod, iPad game. Yeah, I would definitely buy it. Um, but yeah, you should try getting back into retro programming. A lot of a lot of us do it for that exact reason because you get that feeling back of you know one person can have total control of the machine and you can do one project all by yourself in a reasonable amount of time. And, uh, you know, with the resurgence of retro computing, there's actually people out there that will that will play it and, and enjoy it. So, uh, yeah, you might give that a try. I think I will have to look into that. Yeah. Uh, well, that's all the questions I have. Uh, Mike, do you have any others? No, I think we uh, pretty much covered it. Thank you very much for joining us today, Glenda. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was a lot of fun. And I'll definitely uh, listen to the podcast in the future. And I'll have to kind of poke around and see see what's going on in the old Apple II scene now that maybe it's making a little comeback. It's kind of fun. It, it definitely was a fun uh, time to kind of reminisce about the old days. Yeah, you should uh, d- dig through our old show notes. You might be actually surprised how much has been going on, how much new hardware and software there is, and uh, how many people are, are you know are, are doing this again. It's a good uh, good kind of survey of, of the last you know year or so in our show notes. Cool. I will definitely check it out. And uh, in the meantime, uh, we hope maybe we'll see you at Kansas Fest someday. (laughs) Okay, I hope so too. All right, well, thank you, Glenda, for your time. That was amazing. Uh, Mike, Mm, uh, I think we got some uh, news, don't we? Yeah, we do, but first an apology to the the good folks over at Call Apple, Bill and um, Brian. Uh, We we actually, uh, they, they released a couple of, uh, new books um, and updated versions, and we I think we talked about this last time, but there were some sound quality issues where we had to cut some of the stuff, and uh, um, so that got the conversation got cut, but it was still in the show notes, and so I got this email from Brian going, "What happened?" <laughs> so uh, we're very sorry, guys, and uh, we promise we'll we'll get to those in in just a minute. But we actually do have some real news items. <laughs> All right, let's roll into that. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II news. All right, what do we got, Quinn? Uh, first item is one that I really like. Uh, friend of the show and uh, Kansas Fest regular Dagan Brock has been busy. Uh, those of us who follow the Apple II Enthusiasts Facebook group uh, might be familiar with uh, Bill Buckles, who's been very busy writing mm. uh, graphics converters for... Uh, yep for Apple II stuff, which is really cool. So you can take like a modern JPEG and, you know, view it as, as a high-res image or double high-res image. And it does a lot of sophisticated, you know, color remapping and, uh, and dithering and so on. And uh, so Dagan took it upon himself to write a, a GUI front end that is cross-platform for those tools. And uh, uh, it's worth it just for the name alone. Uh, he named it Buckshot, which uh, is the best possible name for this product. And uh, it's uh, it's open source, and uh, he's got it all up there. Um, I, for one, am definitely going to be making good use of this if you want. It's fun just to play with modern, you know, uh, images uh, and rendered on an Apple II. But uh, you know, if you're doing any kind of game and you need a splash screen or whatever, this is a fantastic way to get it. Yeah, yeah, I, I've uh, I downloaded this and I've been uh, playing with it for a couple of days now. I mean, it's a lot of fun just to just to convert like you said monitor look look here's my face on on an apple 2 again 40 years yeah. later you know? yeah so it's great stuff 
Yeah, and credit to, to Bill Buckles. I mean, the, the conversion is excellent. I'm really quite often surprised how good the images look. Sometimes, like, you got to stand back 10 feet to get <laughs> the best effect, you know? You got to let your eyes kind of sure, blur it yeah. a little bit um, because of the resolution and color limits uh, of the Apple II. But uh, yeah, honestly, the conversions are really great. It's like one of those magic eye posters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes you appreciate how much you actually can do with Apple II graphics. You know, uh, we started to see some of that towards the end, you know, like Glenda was talking about Space Rogue and uh, mm-hmm. the other origin games of that era, you know, Knights of Legend and, and so on. They were really pushing the limits of what you could do with, with Apple II high res. And uh, uh, you, you can get that same feel with these modern images converted uh, procedurally. And I know that Bill has been working very hard on these. Um, if you if you spend any time over at Comsys Apple II, you can follow all the threads that he's set up. And he's really done a great job of of um, not just creating these things, but making sure that they're bug-free and they work well. And, and now to have this front end on it is just perfect. Yeah. Yeah. This is really going to open it up for a lot of people, I think. Yep. All right. Uh, from software to hardware, uh, the mysterious Korean uh, Ian Kim has been busy again, and uh, this time it looks like he's cloned a MIDI card. I don't know anything about MIDI cards here. Uh, help me out, Mike. Well, I think the MIDI card just allows you to act as a, allows your Apple II to act as a, a programming interface for you know those, those big synth keyboards that were so popular with bands like Duran Duran in the '80s and things like that. Um, and because when you bought these things, and I think at the time and probably even still now, these were thousands and thousands of dollars, but it wasn't always easy to program them because you didn't have any really good screen and you're sort of limited to the dials and the, and the piano keys. And so somebody, of course, thought of, uh, let's figure out how to interface this with my home computer and so I can program it by software. And that's what this card uh, allows you to do. You can plug into any any musical instrument that has a MIDI interface and, th- and, theor- and theoretically talk to it through this this card. Hmm, that's cool. I actually had no idea there were MIDI cards for the Apple II, and now we have a modern clone of them. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, back in uh, a few episodes back, we talked to uh, about Joe Eli. Uh, he was a Texas mm-hmm. musician and he actually recorded one of his early albums entirely using this process, programming his synth through through this Apple II, and and he talked about you know the the frustrations of it would just shut down sometimes because um, I think he had problems with that machine. But uh, and then he took the record to to the the label, and they said we don't know what to do with this. It sounds great, but we can't sell this. And he ended up re-recording it, and then years later he ended up releasing the original. Um, and uh, you can actually buy and buy that now on iTunes, I think. Um, and uh, oh, and the other thing is, over on SoundCloud, there's a, a guy who, or uh, there's a, a user called I think he called Stinks S T Y N X, uh, who has been con- he's found a bunch of these old discs that have MIDI songs or or um, other synth uh, interface songs. I think he's got some like Mockingbird stuff, um, and he's turned them into like radio channels on SoundCloud, so you can just sit and listen to hours and hours of Apple II MIDI music if you want. Cool. Excellent. And does, does 8-Bit Weapon use uh, Apple II MIDI at all? I know that they have for uh, one or two songs. I think for the most part, they do the stuff through the Commodore just because the SID chip seems to be better for chiptune stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, I know in at least one or two examples, yeah, they, they have used Apple II stuff. Yeah, I wonder, though, if they use uh, the, the MIDI sequencing at all, because uh, you, uh, you, of course, wouldn't need a SID chip or anything for that. But uh... I don't know. I um I know that they worked with Michael Mahone to come up with that DMS drum kit thing. Uh, the program you could buy from them. I don't know if that 
also has a way to work with MIDI interface. So yeah, we should check. That. We should probably have better answers when we ask these yeah, questions. Huh? We should, you know, I shouldn't ask questions that I know neither of us know the answers to. I, I don't know what I was thinking there. <laughs> this is terrible radio. Uh, yeah, I guess at the end of the day, I mean, the MIDI sequencer could be anything. I mean, it could be an Apple II or a modern PC or a toaster because it's just sending, you know, instrument notes and sequence information back and forth to the instruments that are doing the work. So uh, I guess you could use an Apple II for street cred uh, <laughs> with the retro <laughs> community, but otherwise, maybe it doesn't matter. Anyway, so this next item, uh, Call Apple uh, Magazine for December 2016 is out, and uh, we indirectly wrote an article for them. <laughs> so yeah. my understanding is they borrowed some show notes. Is that what happened? Uh, well, it was odd. I got, an e- I got an email from Brian Weiser <laughs> saying, uh, thanks for writing this article. And I went, what? And he said, you're probably going, what, right now? Um, yeah, what he what he did was he uh, grabbed a couple of, of the write-ups that I think you you primarily do the write-ups for, for our webpage, and I just copy-paste them to all the other social outlets um but they sort of combined one or two of those and edited made some edits here and there so that it all read as one article and we're in there yay i think yay (laughs) so yeah it's it's available now for download i i think you have to be a member over at call apple which is like 29 dollars a year to get the pdf um and i a while back i think they tried to relaunch this magazine and there was some poor reviews and so they kind of Took a step back, went back to the drawing board and said, hey, let's make this better. And this new one has like an article, uh, uh, an interview with Wendell Sander, the creator of the Apple III, but it's about his Apple I project and a lot of other interesting stuff. So um, if you were waiting, I'd suggest now be a good time to check it out. Yeah. There's also an article about Open Apple in there. <laughs> I assume the check will be in the mail for that. <laughs> exactly. Where's my royalty check? <laughs> Well, speaking of Call Apple, uh, the aforementioned books are the next item in the show notes. Should we actually uh, talk about those this time? Sure, let's let's do that. Uh, we said we were going to, so we shouldn't disappoint them twice. <laughs> uh, they've, of course, been um, working with publishers of you know the, the Apple some of these Apple II books from way back when to get them updated and republished and. and um, reformatted in modern formats. Um, and you can buy them now, of course, on their web pages. On their web page, they had, the, I know they had like the, one of them was the business wisdom of, of Mike Harvey from his Nivelle editorials, which is really cool. And, um, there's, uh, David All, I think, AHL, who did, uh, a bunch of, um, he did like comics, um, computer comics in, in magazines in the 80s. And that's available as a book. And, but one of the things that they've, also been doing is they've even even been updating their current releases. So there's a new uh, new edition of the Waspack that they started selling a couple of years ago that now has a that now has an intro from Don Williams, who was a, a, one of the Call Apple co-founders, and then he also. Um, uh, so if you're if you're looking for, uh, I guess value added content um, to stuff that you already have, or if you've waited, now would be a good time to get it. Um, oh, and they've, and they've also released, uh, they've announced that the, the Apple Magazine 1979 compendium is, is available. As, if you're a member, I think you can buy back issues one at a time, or you can just get this whole thing for the year of 79. Sweet. All right. Well, we will link to all of that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Yeah. So this next item uh, is a name that many will know from uh, the Apple Enthusiasts Facebook group and other areas, uh, Jeremy Barhide, who actually uh, was also mentioned last episode uh, uh, by Alex Lee. And he's been scanning uh, open Apple magazines. Uh, talk to me about this one, Mike. Over, I think, on apple2online.com, there's a, there's a complete collection of 
of A2 Central and Open Apple magazines. Um, but I guess the compression was kind of pretty high on them. And I think they had them, you know, locked like, you know, PDF lock, which makes it difficult for if you have, if you have a, Adobe Acrobat, it'll open just fine. But sometimes if you have these alternative, re- alternate readers, they have trouble with, with, um, PDFs that are, that are password protected. Um, and so he's gone through and rescanned his collection and, uh, it's, I guess, much higher quality. And, um, he's also been scanning, uh, applications, which is a, an Australian user group newsletter. So, uh, and he'd emailed us a, about this a little while ago, but it was sort of like, you know, it showed up like right after we finished the recording. And, um, so we haven't been able to really talk about it until now. But if you're, you know, if, if you love these old magazines, like I think most of us do, um, you can go download all of those now from, from his website. Excellent. All right. Uh, well, uh, Wazfest uh, is in the news again here, and so it looks like they had uh, Wazfest five and a quarter, uh, which you know you gotta love that. Uh, now, help me out here, Mike, because I'm afraid I'm gonna choke on this <laughs> since we always get these wrong. Uh, Oz K Fest Wazfest. Uh, uh, all I know for sure is Australians did some stuff. So maybe <laughs> that's you can good enough, more right? Details. <laughs> Yeah, so there are a number of um, one and two day and three day uh, Apple Two Fests that apparently take place in in Australia and various places um, that have sprung up over the past couple of years. And every time we talk about it, we get them wrong and we get the emails. So <laughs> I'm looking at uh, two Euro Plus's webpage right now. It says Was Fest five and a quarter, aka Apple Cider. It happened actually uh, on the 20th of November, which I think was right after we finished our last recording, and of course before this one. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a neat write up there. Um, and I think there's some, there's some photo galleries and, oh, and they released a new software. Did you see that? Yeah. Yeah. They re-released, uh, Caverns of Mordia, which is pretty cool. Have you played that? Uh, I have not. I remember the name, but I don't, uh, remember the game itself, actually. That's stretching my memory a little bit. Okay. Yeah. That's not one that I, I remember playing at all. Um, but uh, anyway, if you're if you're down in that part of the uh, part of the globe, um, <laughs> you should definitely go and check it out and uh, give us a call here on the show and tell us all about it. Yeah, you'll know because your toilet's going the wrong way and there's a kangaroo <laughs> punching you, <laughs> and we will refer to it by the wrong fest name. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and it, by the way, the toilet thing is a myth, but I just had to throw that out there because it. <laughs> It was a joke people would get. Okay. Uh, moving right along. This next item I absolutely love. Um, so there's now a, an archive on YouTube of VHS rips of Apple's late 80s and early 90s corporate training tapes. These things are fantastic. If you want to see a lot of forced smiles and bad 80s hair uh, talking about early Apple computers, this is the archive for you. Yeah, these these are people who are not experienced in reading cue cards. Um, <laughs> yes. they have, there's no rhythm and very little inflection there, and a lot. You, you know that Del Yoakum is a great businessman. He ran Apple for a while. He's not good in front of the camera, um, <laughs> yeah. and and you begin to appreciate how great we had it with some of the Steve Jobs's uh, keynotes and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, there are a number of albums or, or playlists. Uh, one of them, my favorite, is uh, there's a number of videos from Apple's user group connection. Uh, I guess what this was um, was a an outreach 
outreach program in Apple to stay in contact with the registered user groups um, and keep them updated on what was happening in Apple and where they were planning to go and things. And they would send, send these videotapes out once a quarter that were just loaded with information and interviews and, and really boring segments on on school stuff and that sort of thing. But some of it was really great. And um, I think each one of these is, you know, between looks like the user group connections are between 45 minutes to like an hour and a half. And there's a, <clears throat> a promotional section. That's like a video about which is better Mac or windows. Duh. <laughs> um, and there's some technical talks. There's some service training videos, which are actually very good because I think one of them is like how to service your image writer and how to service your laser writers. So, uh, and then there's an instructional section and, uh, you have to watch one called a lighter look at holiday promotion. I think they hired a stand-up comedian who doesn't know or care about Apple at all. <laughs> and it's a video where she's talking about, it's, it's meant for the retail stores and to introduce, um, a couple of, um, promotions that they can offer in the stores. And I think like a credit program or something, it is bad, bad, bad. So yeah, it's like, it's, uh, well worth the watch. Yeah, I don't know if I could watch too many of these, but uh, if, you, if you wondered what Apple computer was like before everybody got media training who might be on camera, then this is what it looks like. And before there was a YouTube where they could, you know, distribute stuff over the net. Yeah, yeah, it makes you appreciate actually uh, modern WWDC videos where... Yeah. You know, you're it's pro it's real programmers and, and engineers doing the presentations, but they're all pretty good. And this that's the difference is, you know, the, yeah, they make sure all these people have training who are going to be up on a stage talking to people. <laughs> They've been rehearsed uh, and things like yeah, that. Yeah, it's not all bad though. Uh, I think I watched a couple of like the, like I said, the user connection videos, user group connection videos, and like at the end of one, there's this really great look at inside the the Fremont factory where they're making Macintoshes and two Cs and and the Singapore factory and things. So if that's if you're if that's the history that you're into, it's worth sorting through some of the junk to get to that. I think. Yeah, for sure. And as you said, there is some actually good technical stuff in there, like, you know, how to service your image writer 2, which is actually quite entirely relevant right now if you have an yes. image writer 2 that's broken. <laughs> uh, so there's some, some good, helpful content in there, too. Uh, okay, so this next item uh, is relevant to one of my favorite peripherals, the Ethernet 2. Uh, for anyone who's not familiar, it's uh, a new version of the uh, card that puts Ethernet in your Apple II. And what's cool about the Ethernet 2 is that it uh, does all of the TCP IP stack on dedicated chips that are you know made for this purpose. So it offloads all of that heavy lifting from the Apple II. So the Apple II just has to worry about, you know, processing HTML or, or whatever, you know, FTP or whatever you're trying to trying to build. And uh, so, yeah, someone has written an Apple II uh, web server using the power of the Ethernet 2. And what's cool is that it's written in AppleSoft Basic. So all of the HTTP parsing and so on is all done in AppleSoft. And uh, you can do that because the Ethernet 2 is so awesome. Uh, I, I love seeing this project both because the Ethernet 2 uh, doesn't get enough use, I think, yet. I think it's a really powerful card that's being underused. And uh, I also like it because it showed up on Hackaday, and I always like to see Apple II stuff in more mainstream uh, media outlets. Sure. Now, they do point out uh, that before you get too excited, this particular web server is not currently uh, accessible across the internet. They're just running it on a, a local network only, but they've posted the, uh, the, the AppleSoft basic source code over on GitHub. So if you want to set it up and let people connect to you, you can do that. <laughs> yes, and proceed, and you will instantly get slashed on it. I'm sure. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, or hackaday or something. Yeah, hack hackaday. Sure, <laughs> That's a thing, right? <laughs> 
All right. So in addition to the Apple II Enthusiasts Facebook group, one of my other favorite groups is the Apple Arcade Game Design. I, say, I, I, I choke on this every time because it's the name of a book and the name is terrible. Uh, but <laughs> it's quite it's, a mouthful. Yeah, it's Apple II, Ar- Apple II Graphics and Arcade Game Design or something. Anyway, um, we'll link to it. So if you want to join this Facebook group, you can. Uh, it's a group dedicated to this one particular book that was really quite good at explaining how to do high-res graphics and arcade games on the Apple II. Uh, started by Michael Packard, and he's kind of been using it as sort of community and sort of just uh, live blogging his uh, you know, progress on developing a game based on the learnings of this book. And uh, the first game he's been working on is called Alien Downpour, and uh, he's made a ton of progress on it. So we'll link to that uh, on the Facebook group. Uh, lots of fun videos on there, and he's uh, it's it, the gameplay reminds you might remind you of uh, like Galaxian, something like that. It uh, has a lot of that feel to it, uh, but technically, technically, it's doing some really cool stuff. He's got big, you know, sliding sprites uh, on there. He's got uh, multi-level star field effects, uh, lots of interesting alien behaviors. So, uh, if you're interested in uh, getting back to some retro programming, like we were just talking to Glenda about, this is a, a great place to start. Uh, he's got all the source code up there and everything too, so you can see how he's doing. Yeah, this uh, this looks like a, a fun game, and I'm looking forward to being able to play it. Yeah, and he says he's been developing this into an engine, so he plans to make four games, I think he said this oh, year was his better. goal. Yeah, yeah, so he's been, uh, the, the Facebook group went quiet there for a while, because I think he was sort of off kind of refactoring and generalizing the code and that kind of thing. So uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's something I've been watching with interest for sure. Great. Uh, this next item is a fun one. Uh, the title of the article is The Businesses Apple Left Behind. And uh, it's fun because uh, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't know Apple ever did. Uh, so some, some of it I knew, like we all remember the quick take cameras. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's some really nice uh, pictures of um, uh, some of these past products. I guess the the hook of the article is that uh, Apple is uh, is no longer going to be making uh, monitors, which many of us are quite sad about because uh, I actually quite love Apple monitors. Um, and they're rumored to be discontinuing the airport, which I am also very sad about because I love all of my airport products. I love my little UFO base. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my, my time machine is one of my favorite things in the house. Uh, but uh, there are some nice Apple II mentions in here. Uh, there's talk of the uh, printers, the image writer, the silent type, uh, the scribe, and the laser writer. And the one that I like is the the scanner. I had no idea Apple ever made a scanner. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's scuzzy and it, uh, it's styled to maybe look good next to like an Apple II, or sorry, a Mac II FX, kind of that era, I guess. Um yeah, it looks like you could you could probably club someone to death with this thing pretty quickly. Just one or two <laughs> yeah. blows right to the back of the head. It looks like it weighs about fifty pounds. Very that heavy industrial design uh, that, like you said, was common with the Mac II and the FX and things like that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff in here. The the one that I think that they they missed, um, you know, they, they're talking about external speakers, mm-hmm. and they mentioned the power CD music player, which just looks awesome. Even if you don't want one of these things, it's pretty cool to look at. But they Bose had made those the the roommate uh, Apple II uh, Apple branded speakers for your Apple II GS um, that are I guess those are a pretty hot item on eBay these days. Mm-hmm. But that's those aren't mentioned at all. But other than that, um, I think they got pretty close. There was no mention of what was that game console that they made? The Pippin. Pippin, yes, that that as well. But what's in there is is I think this is a this is a good article. It's it's short and it's an easy read and it's fun. 
Yeah, nice pictures. Yeah, the Pippin was a, a, a noticeable, uh, was noticeably missing from this article because, yeah, that's kind of like the most famous and biggest, you know, exit uh, from a market Apple ever did, I think, or attempt, failed attempt to enter a market maybe. Uh, but yeah, the, and the, yeah, the Bose speakers, uh, not being mentioned also st- stuck out to me. Uh, those are, I bet a lot of people don't know those exist because they were pretty rare and, uh, they are extremely sought after. Uh, mm-hmm. people are fighting over them all the time on, uh, eBay and, and, uh, the Facebook group and so on. You can actually get like the exact same model from Bose that they work great on your 2GS, but they don't have the rainbow Apple logo on them that are yeah. quite a bit cheaper than, than the ones with them. So, <laughs> yep. Yeah, and if they don't have the logo on them, then what's the point? Right. Oh, and they didn't mention the Newton either. Although I guess if you're if we're back into sort of the PDA phone thing, would that be an extension of what they were doing with Newton? So maybe yeah. they're not out of that business. Yeah, I think you could definitely say that the the iPod Touch and the iPhone are really what the Newton was trying to be, and they're. I think it's easy to make the argument they're the same market okay, basically. Okay. So yeah, I'll let you have that one. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and the <laughs> iPhone is the iPhone is definitely what the Newton should have been. The Newton was about ten years ahead of its time. <laughs> yep, <laughs> maybe fifteen. Uh, all right. So uh, this next item is uh, regarding friend of the show Mike Legal's Apple One clones. What's going on here, Mike? Well, I think Mike is sort of, you know, he's had uh, a lot of fun doing this for, I guess, seven years as a blog post over on his hobby blog where he talks about the details of it. But uh, the big part of why he did it uh, was learning. That was the fun part and, and exploring and, and, you know, finding finding out all this information and talking to people who are at Apple. And that's kind of passed now for his for his clones, the Mimeo Apple One clones. And he's uh, so he's decided to hand that whole part of his business over to to Corey Cohen, who we've mentioned on this website or on this website on this podcast before. Uh, he's the one who you know uh, Christie's or Sotheby's calls when they need to verify an Apple One or get it working, that sort of thing. Uh, so he's definitely right there um, in the mix, and and I can't think of a better guy to take over the business for Mike. Mike is still going to be doing hobby stuff. He's uh, really big into that uh, Selby. Um, clone that he's been working on and, and some other things, but uh, he also mentions that some of the other stuff that that he saw uh, he used to sell like uh, the Apple II, he did a Rev Zero uh, board clone, the Super Proto boards, and a couple of other things, the Dianetics keyboard PCB um, or Datanetics keyboards PCB. All of those are no longer available, and he's not going to be making any more. He does still have brain boards and Swift cards, but when those run out, that's it. Cool. Well, it sounds like the business is in good hands. Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to throw my co-host a curveball here and go off our show notes for a couple of items. Uh, so, friend of the show, I guess, uh, someone we've talked about a lot anyway, at least, is uh, Blake Patterson over at the yeah. Bite Cellar. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, every year, does this tradition where he uh, goes and watches a bunch of Christmas-themed scene demos this time of year. <laughs> and uh, so he's done, uh, he does a post every year, and he's done one this year, uh, and He's, you know, he does all the retro computers. Uh, you know, this particular post has got some Atari stuff. He's actually got an Atari Falcon demo, which is pretty cool. Uh, some C64, BBC, just all over the map. Uh, but uh, true to my heart, he has an Apple IIGS demo in here. Uh, so he's got video of the uh, Polymorph Christmas demo running on the Apple IIGS. So I'm going to link to that just because, uh, you know, it's always a good time to watch a 2GS demo, especially if it's uh, holiday themed. Yeah, Blake's found a lot of interesting stuff over the years. I, I remember 
well, not so recently these days, but he came across like four, four or five DVDs that someone was selling on, on eBay and they were, you know, more of, of these internal Apple corporate videos and stuff. And he posted all of those up on YouTube, you know, and I'd never seen a lot of that before. And so I always look forward to whatever he's posting. It's great stuff. Mm-hmm, for sure. Uh, and the next item I want to call out is uh, another person we've talked a lot about on the show, one of our favorite Australians. Uh, of course, we have a lot of favorite Australians here on the show, but uh, Alex Lucazzi uh, of the Apple II Projects blog has got a really great post about archiving uh, a previously unarchived game called Convict. And this was an educational title, I believe, probably local to Australia. Yeah, because it's Copyright Department of Education Queensland. So uh, suffice to say that 4AM probably does not have this disc. <laughs> okay. And uh, it's, it's a really amazing write-up because the disc is not particularly copy protected, but uh, it, it is corrupted. And so he manages to recover the corrupted data, and there's a real odyssey that he goes through uh, to do that. Um, a lot of software tools, copy to plus, sector editors, yada, yada. But at one point, he's got a logic analyzer hooked up to the floppy drive. Oh, wow. And yeah, and he busts out the oscilloscope to recover this data. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. So uh, if incredibly detailed crack write-ups are uh, too non-technical for you, then this is the article for you because this is really, this is a heroic crack slash archive right here and uh, deserves to be recognized. So thanks for sharing that. And we will definitely link to that in the show notes. Yeah, this sort of seems um, a little bit at first, like maybe tilting at a windmill and, and, you know, you're He's well past the point of where he should have given up, and so now you got to stick it through, and I'm going to beat this thing just because I have to. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he, he did a great job, and, and his write-ups, um, like other stuff on his blog, the write-up is, is technical, but it's not, it's not going to overwhelm you with binary math and things like that. Um, you should be able to follow on pretty easily. I think at least most hobbyists these days would, would, wouldn't be too lost with what he's doing, so. Yeah, it's a good read, if nothing else, to appreciate the effort. I, I would have given up somewhere around sentence three. Uh, so, yeah, that when he starts getting out the hardware, that's that's where it gets really amazing. <laughs> uh, all right, so I think our last item here is some uh, great photos of a very rare Apple II. What's the story here, Mike? So this is uh, Apple II serial number 0025. Very, very, very early. early. It's one of the ones that... Does not have the uh, the vents, the vent holes in the case. That's how early it is. Um, um, the I actually saw the the initial post I found I came across on Apple Fritter, um, and he was talking about uh, the the username. I think is Mike D or something like that. We'll have that in the show notes. But uh, he he got it for free from I think a school that that was no longer going to use it. And he talks about how everyone made fun of him for picking this thing up and keeping it instead of throwing it away. Well, haha, jokes on them because. <laughs> He's got this thing and he, he found it, I guess, in his closet, uh, after so many years and it, it, you know, he had to do some work on it, but now it boots up and he's taken some really high res, beautiful pictures and posted them over on Imager and you can look at the internals of this thing. So. Yeah, this thing is fantastic. Uh, it's got the ceramic EEPROMs. It's got the 12 volt RAM. Uh, it's got the green expansion slots, connectors. It's just, yeah, this thing is really, really vintage. It's got the expansion area on the motherboard. Uh, the one interesting thing is there's some kind of a, a modification board in here. Do you know what this thing is? It's called Laser Systems, but not Laser as in you know the modern VTech clones, but Laser with a Z. Do you know what this thing is? Yeah, I think that's a lowercase mod. Um, oh, okay. 
Later on, I think they would call it the shift mod. Early, of course, early Apple IIs and two pluses didn't could not do lowercase without a hardware modification. And uh, one of the thing, one of the great things about some of these older machines is they were owned by enterprising hobbyists who didn't mind getting their hands dirty and going and and clipping some wires and sticking <laughs> things in other places to make it do what they wanted to. So you would often see these weird boards. Um, you know, I think this is serial number zero one. 206, who knows if they actually made 1,200 of these things. Hmm. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a, a mod to allow your keyboard to do lowercase. Yeah, there's a nice picture here of the uh, ceramic uh, Cinertech 6502 with the gold-plated pins. It's just fantastic. Uh, I'm sure this machine will be worth quite a few dollars uh, before too long. Yeah, he uh, took took nice pictures, uh, close up pictures of the of the the RAM chips, um, you know, and you can see that the date codes match up. This is a this is a great example of a very early machine. And if he ever decides to sell it, it'll go for a ton of money. <laughs> it's amazing that it just fell into his lap. Yeah. Uh, all right, is that the end of our news, Mike? Yeah, I think it is. Um, should we move on? Yeah, let's uh, let's do a little bit of feedback. It's been a while since we've done that. Great. <laughs> You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. All right, the first message I've got is from a regular listener and writer, uh, listener Todd. And uh, he wrote in to give us a a, a link to a fun read. Uh, Someone has done a series of rankings of Apple II software. So this person uh, crunched the numbers uh, on the rankings of Apple II software as reported in uh, Soft Talk bestseller lists. And uh, so there's just kind of like a, an overall analysis of all of the rankings of uh, classic Apple II games. And uh, it's a bit of a, it's an older post. It's from last year, but uh, I hadn't seen it. So uh, it's, yeah, it's a great, it's a great read. Uh, the, you know, the top of the charts are sort of what you would expect. Uh, Choplifter, VisiCalc, uh, uh, Apple Writer, Apple Works. Uh, but uh, there's some fun surprises in here. Uh, Space Eggs did, did way better overall than I ever realized it was. Uh, it's quite high on the list. Um, Raster Blaster, I guess, predictably enough, uh, ranks very, very highly. Uh, number one publishers, he's broken that down as well. Uh, Sierra Online, number one. Broderbone, number two. Apple Computer, number three. Uh, so, you know, if you're a bit of a data nerd and uh, want to go through, see who, who really did win on the Apple II, uh, this is a fun read. You, there's some surprises in here for sure. Uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator, you might not realize, uh, is number three. <laughs> so uh, lots of fun stuff in here. Was it uh, was it still Microsoft back then, or was it Sublogic? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Sublogic uh, Flight Simulator. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it uh, sounds like maybe somebody had too much time on their hands. <laughs> sorry, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's really cool. It's fun to see that stuff. Yeah, because you get little snippets of it, you know, when you read the Soft Talk magazines, like we've been doing here on the show. But uh, uh, yeah, to see it all broken down like that's really cool. Uh, All right, the next uh, item I have is from listener Rex, who writes and says, uh, Hi guys, uh, and girl I assume is implied. Uh, (laughs) Last night my family and I were watching a pre-recorded episode of Blind Spot, season 2, episode 6. I'm not familiar with that show, but uh, he goes on. Uh, And my son wanted to rewind to see what what was on the computer screen, and I suddenly realized there was a book on the shelf that said Applesoft Basic. 
do you guys recognize this book? I did a quick web search and couldn't find a cover that looked like this. Uh, and yeah, sure enough, I mean, it's a modern scene in a modern office. Everything's modern. But on a, uh, a file cabinet in the background is front and center an Applesoft basic book. Uh, great eye. It's, it's This is great. Um, it's a little blurry, but you can see, you know, he zooms in for us uh, in the email here. And uh, we'll post this in the show notes so you can all see. It's, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, there's no mistaking it. Uh, I also don't recognize it. It's, it looks like one of those just kind of generic, you know, books that came out by the dozens from the various technical publishers. So, uh, I don't recognize it, but, uh, we'll link it in the show notes. Maybe one of our listeners has it. Yeah, it's strange. I, uh, I'm a big fan of that show and I didn't catch that at all. And, and maybe that's because it's, it's, they're sitting in, and they're all, they work for the FBI and, and in a modern setting. So, why would why would that book just be there? Especially yeah. like on the end of that, it's it's sitting on like the top of the these file drawers, file cabinets. So these would you assume be at least somewhat usable? Because um, books you don't use end up getting shoved aside and put down lower and buried and this and that. But I imagine somebody in the prop department that you know the, we need books and they just went yeah. to the back and grabbed whatever was there. But um, <laughs> my my brain is telling me that I remember that cover, but. Then again, I remembered an Apple IIc photo shoot that never took place, you know, so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's, it says Applesoft basic white lettering. It has kind of the dark green cover and a, a red Apple. And it definitely has that sort of 80s computer book feel to it. So it mm-hmm. could, but I can't say for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It feels familiar to me too. I feel like I've either seen this book or it might just be that, yeah, it's kind of in the style of those 80s programming books and they all kind of had a similar look to them. A lot of them had some spoof on Apple on the cover or the, you know, a real fruit or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd love to know the story behind this. If anyone works on that TV show, you know, we had someone uh, write in about another TV show that we talked about. So who it's knows? True. Maybe maybe we know someone. But uh, yeah, I, I wonder if maybe... Uh, some set dresser was an Apple II person and they were told to go get programming books to put on the shelf so that it looked like a technical kind of office or something. But, uh, yeah, that's pretty random. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, the shot, um, in the shot, it's not ever close enough and it's too short. You can't, it, it's never really in focus enough to see an author's name or anything like that. So, yeah, yeah, you definitely recognize the cover if you saw it. But, uh, yeah, maybe a Google image search. Who knows? It'd be tough to find, maybe. Yeah, let us know if you know what it is. All right, uh, moving right along. Uh, Listener John writes in to say, uh, Hi guys, I was wondering if you could help me to decide which Disk 2 replacement I should buy. Uh, One that's that's available now ideally, but I can wait if needed. I'd like to stop... for the ages. Yeah, we we talk a lot about this on the show. Uh, I'd like to be able to stop using floppy disks, and I want to know what some of the products are available that can boot from DSK images. I'm not sure about is it possible to access two disk images at once, create virtual hard disk images, anything else I should consider. So there's uh, a lot to a lot in there. Uh, the short answer, I guess, is uh, get whichever one is available now, uh, if you need one yeah. now, because they, uh, you, most, most of the time there's one or two available at any particular time. That, uh, they vary a lot. I think right now you can buy the SD Floppy 2 from Plamen in Bulgaria. And I think you can still buy the floppy EMU Model B uh, from Big Mess of Wires. Uh, the latter is a big favorite of mine because of the flexibility of it. The SD Floppy 2 is really well regarded uh, for, you know, especially like just playing games real quick, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, it's got a really nice form factor. The floppy EMU is a little bit bulkier. Uh, the floppy EMU has the advantage of working on old Macs as well, if you need that. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, that's, that's the gist of it. I'm not, I, I don't think any of them allow you to access two images at once, except maybe I think, uh, Nishida Radio's, uh, uh, Unisdisc, I think the new one, the Unisdisc Air, I think allows you to mount two images on two virtual floppy drives. Uh, but that's the only one I think that can do that. Do you know differently, Mike? I believe the CFFA 3000 can do that as well. Right, okay. Uh, that is one of the options that is not currently available. However, uh, Rich is, um, since we're talking about it, Rich Dreyer, who created the thing, has a, a few pro- project status updates on his website uh, from August and then October saying that um, he's gauging interest for a, a run, a fifth run. Um, and uh, he said the, the interest level that they need is about 250 people as of October 15th. Uh, they're at about 150. And so basically the earliest that they could have these would be November of 2017. Um, and the, the longer it takes for the list to fill up, fill up the further back, of course, that, that gets pushed. But I, I know that the CFFA 3000, I think, is is my personal favorite if you don't have to have wireless. Um, although that Unisdisc Air thing, the wireless is so convenient. Um, but uh, as far as features and, and uh, price, if you can get it, then I'd look for the CFFA 3000. And then, of course, any of the ones that uh, Quinn mentioned. Yeah, I think the the CFA, if you have slots, then I think the CFA is yes. definitely the gold standard. If you don't, if you're on an Apple IIc or IIc Plus, I think, uh, yeah, one of, like the floppy emu uh, is a great option, or the Unisdisc Air, if you can get it, is also a great option. The Unisdisc's availability is a bit spotty as well. Uh, Nishida Radio so kind of <laughs> goes in waves. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes it'll say unavailable on his site, but if you email him, he either has one or uh, will make one for you if he has time. So, yeah, all of this stuff is definitely uh, touchy. And it, well, and in his case, what he's what he's switched over to is is he'll make a batch of ten or fifteen, and then announce on Facebook they're going to be on eBay tomorrow, mm-hmm. and they sell out immediately. So <laughs> unless you happen to like see that, you're out of luck. But if you if you want to, he does have a Facebook group. We'll post a uh, a link in the show notes, and if you want to sit and watch that, you you might you might be able to get lucky and grab one of those. Yeah, and I would encourage anyone who's even vaguely interested in the CFFA uh, to please write and, and get yourself on that list uh, yep. because otherwise, yeah, if we don't hit that critical threshold, there will never be any more of them. Uh, so, yeah, we definitely need people to, to to get one more run, at least for those of us who want one and don't have one and have been waiting on the list for a year and a half because yeah. you can't quite <laughs> get to that threshold. Uh, do us all a favor and uh, put yourself on that list, and then even if you're just going to flip it on ebay then at least you know we get them get them made (laughs) (laughs) all right uh next item i have is from uh listener tony and uh tony says hello oa crew i've just listened to open apple number 63 uh hearing about uh, kate discovering the apple II community as well as the yearly k fest was particularly interesting yes we loved having kate she was so great she was fantastic quinn mentioned she got rid of cable and can't watch halt and catch fire anymore given that OA is where I first heard about Halt and Catch Fire, and I'm now a faithful watcher. As a result, I feel it is my duty to tell Quinn that she can watch current seasons of HCF on uh, this link, which uh, Tony provides, without having to pay for it. So, uh, yeah, this is this is good news for me and for anyone else who uh, has cut the cable. Uh, you can uh, watch the current season on AMC's website, which I didn't actually realize, so... I guess that would have been a logical thing to check. Uh, it just never occurred to me to just go on there. So, yep, sure enough, you can. <laughs> and uh, I will be catching up on seasons two and three, which, uh, well, actually, I guess just season three, which I haven't seen because I cut the cable. So thanks for that, Tony. 
and that goes uh, hand in hand with the um, with the news that uh, they've announced the fourth and final season will be taking place next year. So uh, presumably that means uh, we'll get a, at least a wrap up and not just sort of a season ender cliffhanger. Um, I do, you know, it, it's good and bad when they announce that shows are going to be ending. You know, after next season, yeah. it's bad because it sucks if you love it, but it's also that gives them an opportunity to wrap things up. So, yeah, I think I think on balance, I prefer that opposed to as opposed to like the Firefly level tragedy yeah. where they just leave 20 major <laughs> plot threads hanging and the show vanishes and everyone's very sad. Shakes fist. Mm, yes. Uh, or sometimes you get the uh, the Buffy effect where they think the show is ending, so they kill the main character, <laughs> right? And then the they sort out their contract disputes, and then they have to resurrect her and do two more seasons. So, you know that happens sometimes too. Sort of wish they hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know what? I actually like those last couple seasons. Yeah, I guess but this, this is, is not a Buffy show. This is not a Buffy show. Don't do not get me started because oh, I will Lord. talk for another hour. <laughs> All right, uh, listener Max writes in and says, uh, Hey, Quinn and Mike, thanks for Open Apple. Well, you're welcome. Aww. Your show is my favorite Apple-related podcast, if not my favorite podcast altogether. And Max says, Keep them long. The longer the episode, the better as far as I'm concerned. Unfortunately, I don't have my Apple IIGS anymore, but I find your podcast fascinating all the same and will likely pick up a 2C sometime sooner or later. I also discovered Drop 3 Inches recently, and I'm enjoying <laughs> that immensely. Aw. <laughs> Little plug for the uh, Apple III. I guess that's our first Apple III mention. Oh no, you talked about it earlier. Oh no, with <laughs> yeah. All right, you, you snuck no it escape. in. No yeah. escape. All right. Well, I think we limited it to two at least this episode. <laughs> You'll never silence me ever. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, that's all. That's all the emails I've got. Do you have any items, Mike, from the Twitter nope, I or think anything? That, I think that pretty much covers it. Okay, well, great. Uh, you know, as always, if people are interested, please do write us at uh, podcast at open-apple.net or feedback at open-apple.net. I don't know why we have two different feedback email addresses, <laughs> but they both work. And, I think uh, one, of them, one of them got overfilled with spam at one point, so we just uh, sort of, yeah. But okay. anyway, they both work now, so. Yeah, and uh, of course, those will get repeated in the uh, bumper at the end of the show. Uh, all right. Well, I think that wraps us up for December. Uh, we will probably in January do our annual roundtable episode, which we normally do in December, but uh, the opportunity to talk to Glenda came along and we just couldn't pass that up. So uh, we decided to do a traditional format show for December. Uh, but uh, any, uh, any closing thoughts, Mike? Uh, two things. One, if you like what you're listening to and you feel guilty for getting it for free, you can always contribute over at Patreon. Um, we do have a page set up there. It, of course, this will always be free and we'll never charge anyone for this, but you know, uh, the money that, that we, that we do get goes to cover, uh, bandwidth costs and things like that. So, yes. uh, that's always appreciated. And the other thing is, uh, the soft talk review, uh, this month got, we're going to go ahead and bump that to January, but don't worry. It will be back and you can blame Quinn. <laughs> Yes, there's a there's a whole story there, but uh, it the, the TLDR is I'm incompetent. <laughs> Can't <laughs> uh, read. Yeah, yeah, and I'll 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 secondarily plug the the Patreon. Uh, you know, one of the nice things about Open Apple that that we pride ourselves on is the audio quality and uh, the fact that we have the full back catalog available uh, at all yep. times. And a lot of the like the free podcast hosting services uh, don't have those types of things. Don't have that. 
that level of service uh, and or require you know ads or other things to be in the content. So uh, we are all content. We are all free. We are high bandwidth and we are uh, always going to have the full back catalog. So uh, chip in uh, to the Patreon if you wouldn't mind. We appreciate it. All right. Well, uh... yeah. Happy holidays, everyone. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you next year. Have a good one, everybody. Did I hit you right? Did I hear you saying that you're gonna make a copy of a game without paying? Come on, guys. I thought you knew better. Don't copy that floppy. I'm your MC, Double Death. DP, that's the disc protector for you and the posse. That's the artist, writers, designers, and programmers that work up the images for games and grammar to let you learn, but also play the game you came here for today. I know you love the games, and that's all right to do Because the party who makes them, they love them too But if you start stealing, there's no more they can do You say, I'll just make a copy for me and a friend Then he'll make one, and she'll make one, and where will it end? One leads to another, then ten, then more And no one buys any discs from the store So no one gets paid, and they can't make more The party breaks up, and that close the stores Don't copy, don't copy that sloppy So let me break this down for you Sandy Eagle, no more Oregon Trail. Tetris and the others, they're all gonna fail. Not because we want it, but because you're just taking it. Disrespecting all the folks who are making it. The more you take, the less there will be. The discs become fewer, the games fall away. The screen starts to shrink, and then it will fade. Programs fall through a black hole in space. The computer world becomes bleak and stark. Loses its life, and the screen goes to dark. Welcome to the end of the computer age. <laughs> but I'm much too strong and you're much too smart to let that happen to your chances to explore parts of the new age just behind the doors of your minds. You're the posse of the future and you hold in your brain things never thought of before and in time you'll teach us so much more. That's why I'm here and what I'm fighting for. Don't copy. Don't copy that fluffy. Now let me in time the creativity of someone's mind do you think just because with the flick of a key you can copy that game that the work is free this creativity we protected by law we value so highly what the mind's eye saw don't copy don't copy that floppy It's really simple for you The copyright law It will tell you what to do Buy one for every computer you use Anything else is like going to the store Taking the disc and walking out the door It's called thieving, stealing, taking what's not yours Is that really where you want your life to go? Think about it I don't think so Don't copy Say you see a game you like Can you really want to try it? Don't copy that floppy Just go to the store and buy it Think of it this way Okay, when you buy a disc You're saying to the team We respect what you do And what you're working for We'll keep up our support So you can make us some more We'll do the right thing And the future will be clear There will be new programs Year after year Don't copy Don't copy that floppy Now you know how the games And the programs are made And what to do to make sure They're not gonna fail
this is all up to you. There's nothing more that I can do. The ball's in your court, dribble, shoot, or pass. I'm sure you'll make your decision with class. Don't copy that floppy. See ya, I'm out of here. The Homebrew Computer Club, because of its sharing attitude, was very much the opposite of business as usual. It was very much counterculture. It was very much like open source. You give away something, you write it down, other people can look at it, improve on it, come back to you, get some you know little amendments made. Um, but you know, companies did form in the Homebrew Computer Company right, Club. I mean, the people that attended the Homebrew Computer Club formed companies to sell products to make money. And then eventually Steve Jobs came by and we actually started a little company, but not really an official company with big money and boards of directors and that sort of stuff. When we did that later on with the Apple II computer, the day, the day that I left Hewlett Packard to go to Apple and start Apple, I never went back to the Homebrew Computer Club because now I was in a different world. There was, there was a there's sort of famous early letter from Bill Gates, wasn't there, about the, the software and copying the software. Can you tell me a, a bit about that? Sure. Our computer club got very interested in these upcoming computers, and then it became aware that there was a basic language, a computer language that would run on these small, low-cost computers that you build yourself, and then you have to spend a lot of money to buy enough memory to run a programming language and to buy a teletype to type your stuff on. You have to spend several times the cost of a car, but then you could run Bill Gates and Paul Allen had written a basic, came on a big paper tape reel, and you'd read it in on a teletype machine. It would get into the memory of the computer, and then it could run programs. You could type in a game out of a book of games written in the basic language, type in the game, and play it on the computer. This was a goal of probably every one of the 500 of us in the Homebrew Computer Club, was to get to the point that we could play games on our own computer. And Bill Gates became a little bit famous and well-known for this software going around. Well, we had a cop one copy of the tape that our club library had bought, purchased. And one member of the club, Dan Sokol actually, took that tape and borrowed it for two weeks. And when he came back, he brought back like four copies. He just copied the, he copied the paper tape at his company, AMI. And he brought them back and he said, the new rule is anytime you take something from the club library, you have to return at least that many copies. And it's kind of funny. And we got a letter from Bill Gates all upset, you know, copyright, you know, you're copying software and you shouldn't, you know, and I agree. I agree with that. the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. Uh, Quinn mentioned she got rid of cable and can't watch Halt... <laughs> Yeah, wow, that's... This <laughs> can't new, even say it. <laughs> yeah, the warranty ran out on this new mouth. Quinn mentioned she got rid of cable and can't watch Halt and Catch oh, Fire that's anymore. That's a great blooper. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was a dad joke to end all dad jokes. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm going to start that over.